the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Acts 4.13. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. I thought of these words recently from Peter and John going before the rulers and elders and scribes in Jerusalem, Acts 4. Jewish leaders who were not only skeptical, but very hostile to the message of the apostles, because I was tagged in a thread on social media that identified some, quote-unquote, elites. (laughs) You can tell that I'm a little bit uncomfortable even saying that word. I was included in that list, and that was very kind of the person in question. I didn't deserve to be included among the other names on the list and would make no claim to that status. But irrespective of that whole matter, it got me thinking about the very concept of an evangelical elite. A Christian who is in some form elite. It's a concept, a word that we hear a great deal about today. We hear it in terms of sociology, the makeup of society, for example, but we don't often probe it and test it. It made me think, does the New Testament have a category for an elite Christian? I don't mean somebody who's doing great at their faith. I mean somebody who has this high social status among fellow Christians. To put it differently, are there some Christians out there who are just normal Christians? And then are there a few Christians who are, for some reason, by some ranking, elite? I thought of that in light of the book of Acts, because the two leading disciples at this stage in the narrative of Acts are Peter and John, and they are identified in no uncertain terms by Luke, the author of Acts, as uneducated common men. That is a fact that is plain to the Jewish council in Jerusalem. The leaders who are very well-educated men, cosmopolitan men, leaders of the Jewish community are frankly astonished, that's the English word, astonished to discover that the men leading the apostolic charge, the gospel mission in Jerusalem, are not highborn. They're not impressive. They're not powerful The way they talk is not that which shows belonging to a high class. Instead, Peter and John plainly show that they're uneducated common men. If we were going to put this in 21st century terms, these men are probably going to be perceived as rural and working class. They don't have fancy speech. They don't have the demeanor of somebody who normally acquits himself in cosmopolitan settings. They come in, they're rough and ready, they preach boldly and directly, they're not respecters of persons in the sense that they mind all their social cues, 
they're not at all even trying to fit the normal profile of a religious leader in Jerusalem, or more broadly, societal leader. They are simply prophetic preachers. They're men turned loose by Jesus. They got saved. They were born again by God-given faith in Jesus. They were collected by Jesus as part of his original band of disciples. And now, as I say, they have been turned loose by Jesus, filled with the Spirit, to evangelize the world and eventually, Acts 17, turn it upside down. This is remarkable material. If you were picking your band of Christians who are going to change the world, who are going to make a major dent in the massive task of evangelism and gospel promotion and church planting, who would you choose? Who would you send? Let's say you had to select 12 individuals. Who would be on your list of 12? Isn't that a remarkable question to think through? I say remarkable because I think it really puts into contrast how you and I think, commonly, as opposed to how Jesus thought, per the direction of the Father. Jesus assembled an eclectic mix of men as his band of apostles. Not all of them were fishermen, for example, and a few of the apostles we don't know a lot about. We know that the Apostle Paul, who we'll talk about in minutes to come, is from an intellectual, cultured background. So let that be said. Again, more on that just up ahead. But suffice it to say that in the original band of disciples that Jesus chooses, calls to himself, Peter and John are the two main leaders. And Peter and John are not the type that many of us would select to lead the Christian mission as it goes out for the first time proclaiming the name of Jesus in all the world to Jew and to Gentile alike. I think, honestly, this is a very revealing question for how 21st century Christians think about the task of evangelism, apologetics, and missions. Or if I even position that slightly differently, how we think about how in a context like America, we're supposed to represent ourselves. Who would we choose, that is, not just to go to the ends of the earth, who would we choose to represent us in America? If we could assemble our own modern-day band of apostles, who would we choose? Not just who would you choose on your list, but what do you think the mass of people who claim to be evangelical, let's say, of some kind of generally conservative direction, who would they choose as their group of 12? Do you think that this mass grouping of evangelicals across denominations, let's say just in America, for example, but we could do this in England or other contexts if we wanted to in the West, do you think they would choose uneducated and common men? Let me put myself on record here on my very own humble little podcast. I don't think they would. I don't think we would. I think when it comes time for us to appoint our leaders who are going to make a dent in the world, we tend to choose not this type. We tend to choose the opposite of this type in the 21st century. Isn't it remarkable that the Lord of the Church himself, Jesus Christ, who bought us with his blood, when it was time for him to make selections for the All-Star game, that's a joke, it's All-Star season in different sports, 
chose uneducated and common men, at least in terms of Peter and John, and certainly others of the disciples, others of the apostles, that is, as well. You could almost put it this way. It's almost like Jesus' method of building his church and advancing his kingdom is different than ours, is different than the methodology and thinking of the natural man, or even even the redeemed man. (laughs) We tend to think that if we are going to make hay in the world, if we're going to get the gospel out there, if we're going to win people, for example, in cities and universities and Hollywood and politics, we need to send out smooth, polished, accredited individuals who speak the lingua franca of those environments who can handle themselves well and not embarrass anyone, who won't bring any kind of shame to the Christian message, not morally, but even in terms of cultural taste. That's who we tend to think of. And that's who we have tended for probably, I don't know, 100 years or so to appoint for that task. We want somebody who represents us kind of like a U.S. senator would. But Jesus, when it came time to make his selections chose differently, didn't he? Uneducated, common men. Acts 4.13. Everything about Jesus is upside down. Jesus talks and acts and thinks differently from the way we think. Jesus is God. So we take Jesus' selection roster seriously. Perhaps, drafting off of Acts 4.13 and other texts, we even are influenced by it. You know, this is really interesting because evangelicals have long desired a seat at the table. Basically, at least a good number of us want to be elites. Let's just say it in public. Let's just confess it out loud. We want to be elites. Or at the very least, we want to be recognized by elites as allowable at the table. We want to be in the room. Even if we can't be granted a seat at the table of the power brokers, we'd like to be table adjacent. Maybe we're at the kids' table, I suppose. Evangelicals have hungered after this for a long time. The period of evangelical history that I studied in my PhD work at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School under historian Douglas Sweeney was the post-war era, basically. And my research centered in how Harold Ockengay, Carl Henry, and Billy Graham attempted to reclaim the life of the mind in the post-war era. And what I say in my book, Awakening the Evangelical Mind, published with Zondervan some years ago, a few years back, is basically that I see real strengths in the neo-evangelical program, as it is called, the new evangelical program that Ockengay in particular led. I don't burn it all down. I don't see it all as ridiculous. I think it's good for Christians to think, to think well, to get training, to engage cultural conversations, to appreciate beauty, and we could go on at some length in this regard. I would not be one who would identify, for example, with the fundamentalist movement out of which the neo-evangelicals, at least in many respects, came. That's not where I find myself in many senses. But I have also seen, especially as the last decade has wore on, that my generation and the generation above me is in grave danger of making the very same mistake that the neo-evangelicals made. 
and it is this, trying to be elite. If God lets you be elite, let's say, if God gives you fantastic influence and reach in culture, God can do that. God does that repeatedly throughout the Bible. It's one of the reasons why we desperately need preaching of the Old Testament. You need to preach Old and New Testament alike as a pastor. But the people in your congregation who are not in full-time ministry, and that's most of them, very much need, among many other reasons to preach the Old Testament, stories, real stories, of actual historical people who were faithful to God in so-called secular and non-faithful settings. You think of Esther, you think of Joseph, you think of Daniel, and there's many more we could name. Those figures were called by God to be in very dark places, but also to have spectacular influence in them, and that was God-given. So let's not be defeatist here. Let's not think that the Bible teaches us that if we follow Jesus, if we follow the true personal God of the Bible, we are only going to huddle out in our little group of people who collectively share the same ideals and never can make any progress in the world in gospel advancement. That is not my goal. That's not my mentality. That's not my outlook. That doesn't fit my eschatology. If God grants you great influence in a community, in a town, in a city, in a state, in a country, and in the world itself, give thanks to God. He does that. He does that repeatedly. One of my favorite historical figures is William Wilberforce. Another one of my favorite historical figures is Abraham Kuyper. These are individuals who, in God's providence, in the Father's perfectly wise plan, came to tremendous prominence, really in terms of world affairs. William Wilberforce, by God's grace, changed the world. It was through his efforts that the slave trade came crashing down in the UK, and then slavery itself was banned some 30 years before the Civil War uh, made that climactic point actionable in America, ending slavery. So Wilberforce was given by God the opportunity to affect major change in the world. And Wilberforce was from a very cultured and wealthy background. That was of God. If God gives you that kind of background or that kind of circumstance in any number of ways, praise God for it. Don't despise it. Don't look down on it. We know as the book of Acts goes on, for example, that the apostles are going to be bankrolled by Lydia, who is a tremendously wealthy woman. So if you're out here listening and you have real influence, real political capital, real material capital, (laughs) a lot of money, put that to use for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ and do not feel bad that you have been given those gifts by God. Steward them for God's glory. Marinate in 1 Timothy 6, the latter half of it, and be instructed by it in being a Christian who is unusually blessed, whether materially or otherwise. Use that influence. Pour it out like a drink offering for the Lord. All that is different, though, than yearning for the status of eliteness. It's one thing to be given a set of circumstances and a certain background from God. And it is another thing to hunger 
to be accepted by pagans. Those are two distinct realities. Of course, there will be gray areas and hard questions that arise for Christians who do venture out into public. As public Christians, there will be. And we're not scared of those questions. And we know that God wants us to push into those areas so that the questions arise and faithfulness can be worked out. But I want to distinguish between a Joseph or an Esther and a modern-day 21st century evangelical who is trying to escape his conservative evangelical background and desperately yearns to be intellectually acclaimed and culturally approved. Those are two different stations. The desire to be elite, oddly, seems to have flared like gasoline on a fire in recent days among evangelicals. Now, in reality, this instinct will always flare in hard times. What do hard times make you do? They make you yearn naturally, innately, for better days, for easier times. So, when you're under the gun for being a Christian, from any number of angles, you're going to find yourself, at least a number of us are, yearning to be liked, to be approved, to be accredited, to be welcomed into the club, to be given a seat at the table. This desire has greatly caught like fire in our time, in recent days, as threats to Christianity have proliferated. We're under the gun from, again, numerous directions. And so it makes sense to me that Christians will try to find ways to not be perceived as uneducated common men and to make those connections that take the sting out of Christianity, that remove, if you will, the scandal from the cross. Just be watchful in this time, I would say to you. Are you seeing this instinct? How are your peers in your Christian circles, if you are a Christian, in fact, and I hope that a good number of folks who listen to the podcast aren't Christians and become Christians by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But if you are an evangelical, if you are a Christian, what would you say people around you right now are yearning for in terms of cultural representation? What do they want? Do they want men like Peter and John to lead them? Or do they want individuals who are unlike Peter and John to lead them? Is the boldness of roughnecks, gospel roughnecks, like Peter and John, a good thing in the eyes of many modern Christians? Or is the roughneck boldness of Peter and John a bad thing in the eyes of many modern evangelicals? What would you say? We have been given in Scripture a vivid portrait of liberation from eliteness in the person of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul spells out his own journey in one of the more autobiographical portions of his body of letters in Philippians 3, 4 through 9. I want to read it at length because it is so instructive along these lines. Though I myself, Philippians 3, verse 4, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul writes. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake 
of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. There's a lot here. This is obviously a discussion about Paul's Jewish background back in the days when he was Saul, and he was leading the persecution of the early church as the book of Acts unfolds in successive chapters after Acts 4, where we started this humble little podcast. Suffice it to say that Paul counts his background nothing. He had elite status, at least in the Jewish community. He had elite bearing, birth line. He was raised in a group that was zealous. He kept the law, at least outwardly, blamelessly. So Paul was an elite Jew. Make no bones about it. He was there. He had it. He had the place at the table. He may well have become the greatest Jewish leader in the first century community if he had continued on his path outside of conversion in the name of Jesus Christ. It is quite likely. He had an excellent rabbinic education under Gamaliel. So Paul had every advantage that a Jew could have. He had it all. When you read in the New Testament, in Paul's letters in particular, Paul addressing status and identity and how people perceive the church and related topics, never think that Paul is writing about something with which he is unfamiliar. Paul is distinctly familiar with having tremendous natural advantages, with being among the power brokers, with treading on the clouds. He knows what it is like to have a silver spoon in his mouth. And Paul is the one who gave it all up. Paul had that. Paul is not unaware of the pull of being seen as cosmopolitan, intellectual, powerful, impressive, cultured, and on it goes. Paul was all of those things. Yes, of course, the Romans looked askance at the Jews. Yeah, but I'm talking about as a Jew among Jews, a very vibrant and strong community in the first century AD. And I'm saying Paul had every reason for confidence in the flesh. He had every advantage and benefit that you could have in this community. He is not writing out of mere theoretical realities when he talks about giving up the world and giving up worldly things and giving up worldly status. He's being as autobiographical as you can be. And he counts all of that as skubalon in the Greek. Philippians 3.8b, rubbish. I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, he says, as rubbish. All those advantages, all those privileges, there's a modern word that we're discussing, all that esteemed background, all that excellent accreditation educationally, 
It's rubbish. What is the point of Paul's life post-conversion? To gain Christ. To be found in him. Christ is everything. The world is nothing. As we've already talked about, that doesn't mean that you can't appreciate common grace and you can't work hard at your craft. You can't see beauty in the world and marvel at it. In terms of your own calling, just to take that little slice that I just raised, think of a text like Titus 3.8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is obviously a spiritual-oriented passage. Devote yourself to good works. But in doing so, you know that what you're doing is excellent. So there's a call, if you will, if you connect these dots carefully, exegetically, to pursue excellence as a believer. That's not bad. You want to pursue excellence in every area of your life, morally, spiritually, educationally, vocationally, and on it goes. The Bible certainly has no call to not take life seriously, and to only be mediocre in what you do, right? So we're not down on, as I said earlier, getting training, thinking deeply, doing hard things, even educationally. We're, we're not down on building a political career done in the right way, or building a journalistic career, or trying to influence the power brokers in Manhattan, or London, or Paris, trying to penetrate cosmopolitan circles as an intellectual. I'm good with all of that. If I hear of a faithful Christian trying to be a light in those areas, I am thrilled. I want Christians to do great in the business world, do great in the legal world, do great in the political world, do great in the entertainment world. I want more influence, not less. More, 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 more by the grace of God. All biblically shaped. But you must always watch yourself. We all must, right? We must always watch our life and doctrine closely, as Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. We must always know that it becomes easy for each one of us, even as redeemed saints, to have a subtle shift in focus from glorifying God like the gospel roughnecks Peter and John through bold Christianity, fearless Christianity, as we talked about on the podcast last episode and instead to focus on us, to get advantages, to be seen as impressive, to lead a really, really nice life for our sake, to be wealthy, to be powerful, to be influential, but not for virtuous motives, for selfish motives, to want to be elite, Not because we might be given this opportunity to broadcast the gospel and the truth of God and sound doctrine to big audiences, but because we want a seat at the table. We want to belong to what C.S. Lewis called in his commentary on these themes that I'm tackling here, the inner ring. The inner ring. There's a natural desire to belong to the inner ring. That's Lewis's phrase once more. If you Google C.S. Lewis, The Inner Ring, you'll find a just spellbinding essay by Lewis on that theme. Lewis, of course, would be one who I would have some real disagreements with in different areas of theology. But for the purposes of this podcast, I have to say C.S. Lewis did pretty well in terms of being a kind of apostolic witness in his own day. I don't mean he was appointed to that role, but I mean he emulated 
in many respects, Peter and John. He didn't use the apologetic method exactly that I would, to be sure. But for what he had, for what he gained as a Christian, for the little discipleship and genuine evangelical born-again influence he had in his life, he did pretty well. He saw a lot of truths from the Scripture, and he was driven by a biblical mindset, I would say, in a broad sense. And Lewis understood as a professor at Oxford and Cambridge just how seductive and strong the pull of the inner ring was and is. He knew that pull. He's like the Apostle Paul in that respect. He felt the full gravity of it. And in many ways, he rejected it. And that is what whatever God calls you to do as a believer, as a preacher, as a layman, as a worker in God's kingdom, all of us, that is what we must do as well. It is time for us to break with trying to be elite. It is time for us to stop coveting worldly status. It is time for us to stop taking confidence in the flesh. You will make your decisions. You will raise your kids like I am to try to learn and love truth and be good at what they do. Absolutely, you'll push them in that respect, not unreasonably and foolishly. But many of us will want our children to develop real skills and the life of the mind. But you must always distinguish the desire to be elite and liked by the world from the desire to glorify God with your whole being. There can be ways in which those two quests overlap and look like the same thing. But they're not the same thing. They're totally distinct, actually. To pursue excellence for the sake of self and to pursue excellence for the glory of God, as I say, are two polar opposite paths. They're not the same path. And they don't lead to the same end. Pursuing excellence for the sake of self will, if it is not done with a repentant heart, end up leading you to everlasting damnation, to destruction, to hell. The stakes are that high. That is where following your heart takes you. That is where the quest to be liked and approved and acclaimed by the world ends up. But the quest to pursue excellence for the glory of God, all powered by the grace of God through a life of repentance and humility, that leads up. One leads down, the other leads up. And that leads to eternal glory, not because of your own efforts, not because of your own righteousness, but because you are living by faith. The just shall live by faith. And when you do, it is often the case, not always for sure, but often the case that God does bless you and does grant you influence and does fill your plate. Lift up your head. Your cup overflows in a kind of psalm-like way. You never know that it will always stay that way. God appoints different seasons for us. Job knew amazing blessing in two major portions of his life, and Job knew the lowest lows there are. In one portion, that middle portion of his life, recorded for us primarily in the book of Job. I mean in the major body of, of the chapters, as we would call them, of Job. Job himself shows us that God grants 
amazing blessing to faithful men and women out of his sheer mercy and grace. And God also appoints tremendous lows in the deepest valleys there are for his people. That's a subject for another day. We've covered those kind of themes before. I'm sure we will again. Suffice it to say, for us as Christians, as we conclude, there is no way to escape the scandal of the cross. I'm talking about, for the true believer, I'm not talking about the nominal Christian. I'm not talking about the Christian, in other words, in name only. I'm not talking about the fair-weather follower of Jesus, the type who has fallen away in large numbers in the last couple years, and the type who will, if they're still here, and many are, will continue to fall away in these very difficult and trying times for Christians in the West and beyond. No, I'm talking about true believers, and I'm saying for us, there is no way to rub away, scratch off the scandal of the cross. The blood is painted over our doorpost. As in the Passover event when Israel was in captivity in Egypt, we have, by God's grace, painted the blood of Christ over our doorway. We are identified, that is, as believers. And as such, we cannot take away that blood. We have been purchased. We have been bought back. And so for us, the only way forward is the way of the cross. The only path to heaven is one that involves carrying your cross, the one God has given you, which is different from the one God has given other believers. I think along these lines of 1 Corinthians 1, Here's the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians one twenty. As I read these six verses, think about Paul's background. Think about what we have talked about. Think about Paul losing the world in order to gain Christ. Remember that these words that I'm going to read to you now, that you can read anytime you want, they're not theoretical. He's talking about losing the world, and he himself lost it. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's no way to escape the scandal of the cross. God grants influence and blessing and material prosperity to his people as he sees fit, and we need not fear that. And we should steward whatever he gives us maximally, intentionally, aggressively, fearlessly for his glory. But do not misunderstand. When you think 
of the project that many professing evangelicals are after in our day, in different forms and in different ways, to be accepted and approved by the world. Don't think of some august campus. Don't think of some really neat conclave of the globally powerful. Don't think of those out somewhere in the Mediterranean on a super yacht. When you think of the desire for cultural acceptance and influence, how we could best accomplish that, who we could choose and appoint to that task, who would lead us in getting respectability, what we so desperately crave today as evangelicals. Don't think of any of those settings. Think instead of a Roman cross and a man left to die, battered, bruised, bleeding rivers of blood, impaled by a spear, choking to death. Remember that picture. Remember the scandal of the cross. Remember what the world did to the God-man, the one who came and perfectly represented God. And then remember your calling as a Christian, whatever God has specifically given to you to do. We preach Christ crucified. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.